Hey there, it's Frank Buckley. Today, it's a remarkable and inspiring story about a doctor who nearly died several times from a rare disease until he decided to use his medical training to cure himself. It's Dr. David Fagenbaum, the author of Chasing My Cure, a doctor's race to turn hope into action. Dr. Fagenbaum was a medical student when he was diagnosed with Castleman disease, described as a cross between cancer and an autoimmune disease. That would result in his major organs shutting down. He experienced that several times over the course of nine years. Now he's in remission, but only after experimenting on himself and it's working. And Dr. Fagenbaum wants to make sure others can benefit from what he's learned. And he has a message for the rest of us as well, which you're about to hear. Here's my conversation with Dr. David Fagenbaum. Dr. Fagenbaum, thanks for being on the program. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you sitting here smiling, healthy, uh, and, and living life. That's right. I think I guess I've kind of given away the way that the book ends by you seeing me <laughs> sitting here today and, and feeling well. Yeah, I would imagine, and and I'll take you back to, it was it 2010 when That's you right. were first stricken with uh, Castleman's disease? You had played football at Georgetown right. uh, University, 25-year-old, third-year medical That's student, right. and in theory in the prime of health. That's exactly right. And what happened? So I, as you said, totally healthy, had never had any medical issues, training to become an oncologist in memory of my mom who had passed away a couple years before and was was fighting to you know achieve this goal of treating uh, patients in her memory. And then out of nowhere, started feeling a little more fatigued than usual. But as a medical student, everyone's tired. We're right. all working hard. Um, but then the fatigue got worse and worse. And I started having this sense of doom almost. Like I didn't know what was going on, but I remember telling my, my friends, like something really serious is happening. I don't know what it is. Well, didn't you even tell friends, I think I'm dying? I told them, exactly. I said, I think I'm dying, which is, I'm, I'm not a dramatic person. I mean, this was really, um, quite unusual for me, but I, I told my closest friends, I don't know what it is, but I think I'm dying. And um, over the ne- course of the next couple of weeks, I got some abdominal pain. I noticed fluid accumulating in my legs. I noticed that I just kept getting worse and worse. And I didn't know what it was. Uh, I was so tired at, at, when I was going through this that I actually would go into patients, or I would go into empty patient rooms in the hospital to take brief naps mm. before I'd go in to see additional patients because it was just fatigue. It's hard to describe. And I took a, an exam for medical school and I went down the hall from that exam to the emergency department and uh, got blood work and they said David your liver your kidneys and your bone marrow are shutting down we have to hospitalize you right away mm. and so that begins the process of you eventually discovering what it is and that's right beginning to cure it and we'll get to that part of the story in a second but as this is happening to you you're a medical student mm-hmm. you've been on rounds mm-hmm. you've been treating patients right. and now you're a patient and tell me about that side of it first. Yeah. It was uh, it was eye opening in, in in many senses to to be on the other side and to to be going through what I'd been treating patients. Um, it was also terrifying um, to be in the hospital same hospital beds that you know I'd been treating these patients and to to go through the fear that comes from no diagnosis. It was weeks with no diagnosis. My organs started to fail, so I was on dialysis because my kidneys had shut down. I was getting daily transfusions because my bone marrow wasn't functioning, all with no diagnosis and just so much uncertainty. Um, My family was terrified. I was um, in and out of consciousness. It was just, it was um, a really, really tough time. Mm. And 
eventually you do get discharged, your body, what happened? Yeah, so after seven weeks of being in this critical condition, I just started to improve kind of miraculously is almost kind of how we felt. We didn't know what or why, how I could leave the ICU. Um, but I wasn't really, um, I wasn't uh, confident or, or I wasn't okay with that being kind of why I got better. There was some miracle. And so yeah. I tried to dive into the medical records and see, can I figure out why, you know, I'm getting better. And unfortunately, just a few weeks later, I was back in the hospital, came back again, yeah. came back with a vengeance. Mm-hmm. And um, so severe the second time that I actually had my last rites read to me. My family came in to say goodbye and and brought a priest in. And, and so I was kind of prepared and, and thought that was it. I remember as just after the priest came in and I started to reflect back on my life, I thought about the things that I had done, the things that I hadn't done. And I didn't regret anything that I had done. I only regretted the things that I had not done or had not said, mm. things that I didn't get a chance to say to my ex-girlfriend at the time, Caitlin, and and things that I would never be able to do, like have a family and, and, and be a parent. Uh, and so um, I remember when I started to improve, because fortunately I got the diagnosis around that time of idiopathic multicenter Castleman disease, and with that I got chemotherapy that saved my life. Um, but as I started to improve, I, I decided that I need to really make the most of every second. I, I kind of feel like I'm in overtime, you know, in, in a sports mm-hmm. event, sporting event, overtime is that extra time that you don't think you have, but every second counts, and I've really been living by that ever since. And you, you mentioned your ex-girlfriend at the time, Caitlin, and while everyone is interested in the medical part of this, the human part of this, as you had all these friends and family coming to say goodbye, Caitlin tried to visit you in the first hospital. Caitlin tried to visit you in the second time you were hospitalized. You had broken up at that point, but you in your heart wanted to see her, but you kept pushing her away. How come? I did. You know, I think that in hindsight, I wish that I hadn't pushed her away, but, um, I think it's based on my mom passed away from cancer just a few years before that. And though I have the most beautiful memories of her and the kind of person she was, I also was with her for her last breath. Mm-hmm. And that memory is, is, a, is a memory that, um, that I, I cherish, but it's also a memory that has been burned into to my memory. And yeah. so as, as I prepared to, to die and didn't think that I would have any more time, I didn't want that to be Caitlin's last memory of me. I, um, in hindsight, I think that I should have should should have let her come to see me, but I was just so afraid of that being her last memory of me. We'll talk about whether or not Caitlin comes back into your life a little bit later, but after that second mm-hmm. um, period of of sickness, and you come out of that again, what happens next? So at this stage now, I've received chemotherapy. I have a diagnosis, and again, we're pretty optimistic. You know, maybe we figured this thing out. We just need to maybe find the the right um, expert. So I figured out that there's an expert in Little Rock, Arkansas. Went out to see him, and he came up with a treatment plan for me. He knew everything there was to know about Castleman disease, and I was more optimistic than ever, more hopeful than ever. Um, and unfortunately, when I was out seeing him, I had another relapse, mm-hmm. and so this is the third time now in, in the first six months, and I was hospitalized again and all of my organs shut down again Mm. Um, everything that had worked the previous chemotherapy that had worked with the first and second time didn't work the third time and so he gave me multi-agent chemotherapy seven really bad chemotherapy drugs that just destroyed my immune system and and started to to destroy this disease idiopathic multicenter castleman disease that was trying to kill me and i started to feel better i mean i was so sick that with every dose of chemotherapy i actually felt better than before the chemotherapy wow it it was crazy and so so sick but fortunately, um, the drugs kicked in and, and saved my life. Hmm. 
And so at that point, did you think, okay, I know what to do here? Or did you begin the path of, as your book is called, Chasing My Cure? That's right. So at that stage, um, and, and the book is so much about um, the different kinds of hope and how hope can be really helpful. And when we can be hopeful about something, it can help us to fight through tough times. But hope can kind of sometimes um, impede us from taking action because we can be hopeful that someone else will do something. And so uh, at this stage, I was really hopeful because I was with the world's expert. And actually, they started me on this brand new experimental drug, a drug that had just come out or was in development, but it was helping other patients around the world. And I was so hopeful that this drug would keep me in remission. In fact, so hopeful that I was able to return to medical school after being hospitalized for almost six months and hopeful that it would never come back. So I kind of was back on my track of training to become an oncologist and really wasn't that interested in getting involved in Castleman's research because I believed that someone somewhere must be doing Castleman's work and that I could just hope and I could pray that they would make progress. Um, but unfortunately, about a year later, I had a, a major relapse. And mm -hmm. this was on the only drug in development. There were no other promising leads and there was really no reason to be hopeful. And for me, that was really kind of rock bottom where I told my dad, sisters, and Caitlin and I got back together around this time. So I told her as well that I would dedicate the rest of my life, however long that may be, to trying to treat or cure this disease. Mm. And you came out of it again. I survived thanks to chemotherapy. I survived again. Um, but this time when I survived, I was kind of done hoping. Um, mm. I was done hoping someone else somewhere would figure this out. And I realized that if I really wanted to have a future, if I wanted to have a future with Caitlin, if I wanted to have a family that I had dreamed of on my deathbed, then I really needed to get to work. And for me, that was starting a foundation called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. I wanted to bring together researchers, patients, physicians from all over the world to come up with the right research to do at the right time. And then I also started doing laboratory work at the University of Pennsylvania. I got some, some lab space where I could start experimenting on the easiest samples I could get my hands on which were my own <laughs> yeah and and you point out in the book that so many nobel prize winners that's right have have advanced medicine by experimenting on themselves that's right you know sometimes um crazy ideas um are, are the the ideas that no one else will get behind sometimes can can really make major progress in medicine and so um in many cases ideas in the past have been considered to be so crazy that the only people that would actually take the medicine would be the actual people doing the work who really believed in the work that they were doing. Mm. And actually, I, I share a story in the book about uh, a physician in Japan who actually gave a drug to himself to prove that it was safe. And, and I heard this story and, and I asked him, I said, Kazu, I heard that you gave this Castleman's drug to yourself. He said, no, no, I didn't give it to myself. The nurse, she gave it to me. <laughs> right. He said, exactly, Kazu. That's what I thought. <laughs> but at, at one point, you must have had a, a thought of, hey, I've, I've found something here. And when was that moment? Yeah, so that moment I had, had another relapse. So number five happened um, right around the time that I just got engaged to Caitlin. Mm. And um, so it, it almost felt like I had more to lose than ever before. It was We were so close. And, and as I was going through this, it wasn't that I thought I could have a long life with Caitlin. It was that I wanted to make every day count, and, and I just dreamed of being able to get married to her. I just wanted to make it to May 24th, 2014 so badly. Mm. And, and if I made it to May 25th, that would be amazing, but I just really wanted to make yeah. it to May 24th. And right, right around... Um, the time that we got engaged, I had this relapse and I, I almost died for the fifth time. And, um, it was frightening. There was over a week where I was in a really critical state where it was just kind of 
thinking that, that I wouldn't wake up the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, I survived thanks to chemotherapy again. But this time, um, I really dove into my data. I realized that I could not just kind of continually have these relapses and remissions and, and nearly die kind of every, every, several, every few months. And so I really dove into my data, um, laboratory research that I've been doing and also the data from the collaborative network to see if I could find something. Is there some signal in there that could indicate that a drug that's already FDA approved for some other disease might actually help my Castleman disease? Because at that time, I had failed to respond to anything that had ever been tried before for Castleman. So I started thinking, there's 1,500 drugs that are approved for something. Mm-hmm. Could one of those 1,500 drugs actually help me with my Castleman disease? And from within the data, I found a signal that I thought suggested this new, or not a new drug, it's a drug that was developed 25 years ago, could be used in a new way for my disease and um, decided to try it on myself. Mm. And so help me first understand what was the mechanism, what was sure. that signal and then how did you think it would help you? Sure. So within my samples, I found out that this communication line, um, our immune cells have to communicate with one another because we've got immune cells all throughout our body. And the way they do that is through what are called these uh, signaling pathways. And this one communication line in the immune system I found was hyperactivated in my own cells from mm. the experiments that I did. And Knowing that it was hyperactivated, I, I asked, is, is there a drug that targets this and could deactivate this really kind of, it's kind of like, um, a, you can think about it as um, your immune system being like firefighters. And this communication line is kind of like a fire alarm, telling the firefighters, there's a fire somewhere, go out and do something. And get that particular, and get that exactly, fire. Exactly. Right. Or imagine the fire alarm is on everywhere, so they don't know where the fire is, and they just start kind of attacking everything. Mm. That's kind of what happens in Castleman's. Castleman's is, or idiopathic MCD is what I have. It's kind of a cross between a cancer and an autoimmune disease, and basically the immune system just goes crazy attacking everything. Mm -hmm. And so when I found that that communication line was on, um, that suggested to me that maybe that could be the problem. Maybe there's an issue with the alarm being kind of constantly on. So these immune cells are are always doing bad things. And um, there's this drug, serolimus, which developed 25 years ago to inhibit this one communication line. It was developed for kidney transplantation because if you get a kidney transplant, then your immune system will attack that kidney. This is a way to turn that communication line off. So it's an anti-rejection drug. That's exactly right. And you thought, okay, this will turn off that that fire that alarm switch. in exactly. my body. Yeah. And so, how do you even determine how much to take, and <laughs> you know, when do I do this, and all of that kind of stuff? It, it was. Um, it's not easy when something has never been done before. Um, you, it's hard to know what to do. We decided to just go with the dosing used in in anti-rejection setting in the kidney transplant setting because it's been done before and there's some safety data around it. But we really were in a data-free zone. And were you in a hospital room, in your bedroom? Tell me about the first time. So uh, at this time, I had now gotten the same seven chemotherapy drugs that um, destroyed my immune system and, and were, you know, I was getting better. So I'd started to improve with the chemotherapy. And at this stage, um, I, dis- I did all this work over the next several weeks. And so my, my head was bald because I'd lost all my hair from chemotherapy. I was weak from this relapse. I'd just been getting dialysis. And... Um, I found this signal. I thought it could work. I actually was just looking at some emails recently with a friend about about like the day before, like, I think I'm going to try this. I don't really know if it's going to work, but this is why I'm doing it. Um, and it was, it, was a, it was a time of uncertainty, but it also um, was a time where I knew I had no other options. And so mm-hmm. if I wanted to 
if I wanted to, to make it to May 24th, like I said, that was my goal. If I wanted to make it three more months, uh, I needed to try something. And, um, and so I ended up talking and sharing it with a couple doctors that I, that I work with that are colleagues of mine now, but also take care of me clinically. And in the setting of not having any other options, they said, let's try it. Mm -hmm. It's a pill. And so, um, I got it from my nearby neighborhood CVS pharmacy. And it's crazy to think for three and a half years, I had walked past that same pharmacy in and out of the hospital, nearly died five times, but that drug had just been sitting in there the whole time. No one had ever thought to try it. Wow. You know, how many other diseases and how many other drugs are there out there that are just waiting um, for, for someone to connect the dots yeah. and, to, and to hopefully save lives? And you wrote the prescription for yourself? So I didn't end up writing for myself. <laughs> I had my my colleague wrote it. Right. Um, the first time, you know, this drug had ever been used for this disease. I thought it probably wouldn't have been good form if I, if I wrote it myself. Right. And so you pick up the... P picked it up from the pharmacy. And um, yeah, like I said, first time ever using this drug. And then I started taking it. And um, But I, I want to <laughs> know about, did you physically sit in the parking lot of the CVS? Or I mean, were you at your house? Or did you go to your doctor's office? Or how do you... Tell me about that moment. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I physically picked it up from this, the same CVS I'd walked by all these times. I, I took it home, and, uh, and my wife and I were sitting in our living room. Um, uh, we were in a one-bedroom apartment, so this living room also happened to be where I had a, had an office and where, mm. where my desk was. It's the same desk where I had kind of the eureka moment about the mTOR pathway. And so just a few feet away from where where I said, I think this drug could work, I took the first um, the first three pills and um there wasn't an immediate like yes it's, it's worked <laughs> um but there was a, a real relief that we were trying something and we had something we could believe in um but the truth is at that stage i had gotten really optimistic a number of times before yeah um i had uh you know had a lot of lows and a lot of highs and i talked to caitlin a lot about that moment and um I said, you know, I, I wasn't very confident. I was kind of unsure. And, and she just says that she was totally confident. You know, she just believed. I said, I wish I had that confidence <laughs> back then. I was just hopeful, but, um, but certainly didn't know whether it would work. And how soon after you took those first three pills did yeah. you start to feel a difference? So within just a few days, I started noticing some symptomatic improvement. But I... Um, you know, I, I don't like to trust symptomatic, subjective things. So then I started seeing laboratory improvements, and, and that started making me feel that they're really that we really were onto something. Um, but what I knew the real test would be would be kind of a test of time, because I had relapsed every several months previously, and um, this was our hope that we could prevent a relapse. So what, to really know this was working would be as time would go on, and mm. could we make it to May twenty fourth? Yeah. And we did make it to May 24th, and um, in fact, uh, my hair grew back just in time, so it looked like I had a buzz cut, even though, of course, wow. I'd lost my hair from chemo. And, and that probably doesn't seem like that important of a thing to have hair, but for me, that was actually really important because I wanted I didn't want to look sick. I wanted mm. to look like Dave. I didn't want to look like you know, the person that had been through all that I'd taken Caitlin through in this journey, and, and so my hair came back just in time. Oh, gosh, and that must have been such a moving it was experience for everyone. It was there. to be, you know, to be at the altar and to say till death do us part in mm. sickness and in health. Oof. These are things that, um, you know, at our age, uh, I, I think that it's at, at our age, we shouldn't have had to have gone through those sort of things. But in many ways, what a blessing and what a um, what a gift that. Caitlin and I have to know that we really will be there for one another in sickness and in health. Or mm. we knew we had the sickness part down. I right. figured we could probably <laughs> handle the in health part. Right. 
Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Um, it's been five years now? Five and a half years. That's five right. and a half years. So the clock continues to tick and we continue to... Um, to continue to be a longer and longer remission. Um, earlier, I talked about this kind of sense of, of overtime that you know every second counts, and that um, uh, I learned that um, we don't know how much time we have. And in, in sports, you know, when, when you're in overtime, you really have to make the most of every of every play um, because you don't know how much time you have. And now I'm in my fifth overtime. Um, but what I've learned is that we're all in overtime. And you know, this is why I wrote this book is because. I learned so much about life and about living from mm. nearly dying five times. Mm-hmm. Lessons that I, I wish I didn't have to go through all that I did to learn them and lessons that, that I really hope to share with readers so that they don't have to go through the same things I did. Yeah. Um, are you massaging the the therapy or wh- where is it? I mean, or is yeah. it just still the same number of pills and the same dosages? Or I don't like to mess with success. Yeah, yeah, so course. for me, it's the same. Um, but we actually have just started a clinical trial. So I work at the University of Pennsylvania. I run a, a research program there studying Castleman disease. And um, we've just launched a clinical trial where we're giving this drug to other patients. We also know that about 10 other patients have received the drug in the same way that I did, where it wasn't part of a clinical trial. It was off label. And we know that about half of them have improved, but half have not. Mm. And so um, to, to, it's hard to even put into words what it was like when the first young patient was on this drug and had a really impressive re- recovery mm. on this drug. The, the feeling, um, the book's called Chasing My Cure, but all of a sudden it became so real. This is chasing our cures. You know, this isn't just me. This is so much bigger than me. And it, it's hard to even describe what that feeling was like. Yeah. Um, but that same sense of of excitement and accomplishment that we're helping other people um, has also, un- unfortunately, I've had the inverse of that as, as, as this drug's been given to patients that, that nothing else was working for and it did not work for them. And so that really sharpens our focus and, mm. it, and it keeps us wanting to, to push forward the research even further so that we can help other patients with this disease. You say it's chasing our cure. How many people is our? How many people are affected by Castleman's disease. There's 5,000 patients diagnosed each year in the U.S. So it's a rare disease, but that's about as common as ALS, a disease certainly with a lot more awareness, and it needs even more. ALS is, is one of these awful diseases like Castleman's that needs more awareness, needs more funding, um, but it's a disease, Castleman's, that really has very little awareness. Um, my subtype is the most deadly subtype. About a third of us die within five years of diagnosis and another third within 10 years of diagnosis. And we can be diagnosed at any age. So our youngest patient is one year old and all the way up through their 70s. So this is a, a devastating disease that we really need to make a lot more progress for. When anyone hears about any disease, they think, how did he get it? How can I make sure I don't get it? Exactly. So what are the answers? I think that's what's kind of scary about a disease like idiopathic multicenter Castleman disease is we don't know what causes it. It affects individuals of all ages, all ethnic and uh, uh, all backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that that is scary for people to not know why, but that is a real 
focus for our research is to understand why is this happening and how do we more effectively stop it. I'm I'm thrilled that I'm I'm in remission now. It's about 68.7 months that I've been in remission, um, but I, I realize that I have to be so thankful for this time. But I also realize that I can't really round up because. I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Mm. I don't know if this drug will stop working and this disease will figure out a way around it. Um, but we've also worked really hard to get the 0.7 months. And so I don't say I don't round down either. I don't say it's only been 68 months. Right, right. <laughs> As you say, the body has a remarkable way, and diseases in particular have a remarkable way of finding a way yes, around drug therapies and, and, and cures. We see that all too often. Um, and how do you... I guess, live your life knowing that? You know, I think that the way I, I, I cope with that is that I focus all of my time and all of my energy on either conducting Castleman disease research, so trying to push the science forward with everything I've got, or being with the people that I love, with my wife, Caitlin, mm-hmm. and, and my daughter, Amelia, a year well, that, ago. You gave that away, but tell, let's, yes. before, we get to the, before we get to back to the medical part, tell us about this amazing news in your family. Yeah, so um, as I shared earlier, as I as I laid on my deathbed the first time, I, I, I mourned that I would never be able to have a family with Caitlin. I would never be able to, to be a father. And so when 13 months ago, when um, when Caitlin and I had our, our sweet Amelia, it was um, just, it, it was like a dream. And I think that all parents, um, uh, it's just so special to, to be a new parent. Um, I think that for Caitlin and I, because it was for so long so unlikely that something like this could happen, I think that maybe it was just a, maybe even a touch more special. Yeah. And um, our sweet Amelia has been the greatest gift. She's 13 months old now and just brings us so, so much joy. Did you ever have a moment of worry that, gosh, uh, you know, she might get, my baby might get Castleman's? Is it. You know, should we take that step and 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 become a family? Absolutely, it's something that I, I've absolutely worried about. Um, we know that um, there are about five to ten families that we know of with Castleman disease where there's multiple patients in the family, which means that it's very rare. But oh, probably over ninety-five percent of Castleman disease patients do not have an immediate family member. So. Um, it's unlikely that Amelia will develop Castleman disease, but it is a possibility. And it is something that Caitlin and I have thought about for a long time mm-hmm. is, um, you know, is, is about our, our, our sweet daughter. And, you know, it, is this something that she could face? Um, unfortunately, we don't know the genetic alterations that cause this disease. Yeah, that's one of the areas that I focus on a lot. And so there actually isn't like a test that I could do of Amelia to see if it's likely or unlikely. So for now, I just, as I said before, for me, it's my people and my purpose. So it's my my wife, my my daughter, my family, my friends, and it's my purpose. It's pushing forward the research with everything I have because if my daughter were to develop this, then I need to push forward the science. And, And because there are so many other patients with my disease, I have to keep pushing forward mm-hmm. the science. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, think about it as chasing our cures. It's also important to think beyond Castleman disease. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that's my real focus now. Um, but the truth is, as I said before, there's 1,500 drugs that were approved for at least one condition, but many of those drugs may actually be effective for another condition. And so an area of research that I'm really passionate about is trying to understand what drugs already exist that might actually be treatments or cures for a disease that don't have any mm-hmm. options. In fact, actually, 
one in 10 Americans have a rare disease. 30 million Americans have one of the 7,000 rare diseases. Mm. And 95% of rare diseases don't have any FDA-approved therapies. Mm. So despite all the progress we've made for so many diseases, um, there's still so much more that we need to do. And um, chasing our cures, we're chasing after them. We haven't gotten them yet, and we really need to keep pushing things forward. And as a researcher now, and as a doctor, as you've been working in this space, what have been the impediments that you've yeah. faced in that regard in terms of government approvals and that sort of yeah. thing? Yeah, so really the, oh, I've been surprised by what the impediments are. I, I think that, um, I, initially I think that I thought it was maybe just financial, um, I, and I think financial is part of it. Funding to do research is really critical, but I've mm-hmm. also found that there has been some issues with collaboration within particular diseases, so people working together within and also across diseases, people sharing what they're learning um, with other diseases. I think this kind of issue of collaboration is one part of it. Another That, that it's not happening enough? It's not happening enough, mm-hmm. exactly. And um, the other, which is somewhat related, um, is that the way that research happens is really quite random. And what I mean by that is that basically you have to, for a particular disease, you just kind of you raise money and then you hope that a researcher will apply with the right idea to use the money in the right way. And that works when you have millions and millions of dollars and you have hundreds of researchers. It's, you know, you'll find someone with the right idea. But when you have a rare disease that maybe only has a handful of researchers, um, you're going to get a handful of ideas. And mm-hmm. it's, it's really unlikely that one of those five ideas is really the most important research study for that disease. And it will be done by the most, by the most qualified researcher in the world. And so um, what we've really tried to do for Castleman's is to say, let's not just raise money and then invite people to apply and hope the right researcher applies for the right project at the right time. Let's build a community of physicians, researchers, and patients to prioritize what should be done. And then let's go out and find the best person in the world to do each of those studies. Mm. Let's bring them in. Let's give them the funding and the samples they need. It's a. It seems like a, a simple shift, but it's really critical to get away from um, hoping that the stars align to actually really kind of aligning the stars. And that's a, I mentioned earlier that hope is such a big part of my book. And you know, trying to get away from hoping and praying that all of these things will align to just saying, what am I hoping and praying for? And mm. what can we do if we're hoping and praying for to progress? To create those conditions. What can we do to create those conditions mm. so that we get there more quickly? I see. And it seems to me that, you know, as you were talking about all those drugs that are there, all these diseases that are here, and some that have similar triggers like Castleman's yes. and, and what you discovered, that that somehow if we could apply data and, yes. and a, and a supercomputer to say, mm-hmm. hey, what are the possible connections? It, yes. it would spit out things. Is that happening? It is happening. Um, there's a, a wonderful um, friend and collaborator, Matt and Mike, down at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, who's really harnessing big data and um, supercomputing artificial intelligence to try to do this, to use all of the the millions of, of medical journal articles and all these drugs that are existing, try to cross and figure out what could work for mm. what other, um, what particular disease. And, and we're doing this to a small extent in the sense where we really encourage, so, so once you find a hit, once you find something that might work for something else, um, what we've done for Castleman disease is to then perform a series of experiments in the lab to say that, you know, big data can kind of only take you so far. It can propose ideas, but then you need to set up some really clear experiments in the lab to kind of validate what what big data is telling you. Mm. And then if and when that drug is given to patients, you need to, tr- to track extensively whether the drug works or doesn't, because a lot of times doctors will try new, will try old drugs and new uses. Mm. But unfortunately, 
whether it works or doesn't work is often not well tracked. And so then another doctor down the street will do the same thing and, and it's never brought together in one place. And so no one learns from it. So if it works, no one knows. And if it doesn't work, no one knows. And either way is bad because you want this to be a learning healthcare system where we, we learn from all of our patients. And so we're really big proponents of once big data proposes something, let's do experiments and then let's track if and when it works. Hmm. What are the next steps for you in terms of on the medical side and, mm-hmm. and the research side, where are you? And for those people who find themselves suffering from the same thing, how close are you to a real cure, as yeah, it were? Absolutely. So um, where we're focused right now, it's says three main areas. The first is that we know that there's one drug that works for about a third of patients with Castleman disease. Um, that drug did not work for me. That was the experimental drug I mentioned earlier. It went on to get FDA approved. Um, it doesn't work for me and for two-thirds of patients. And so we're very focused on identifying treatments for these patients where that one drug doesn't work. This drug that I'm on, we're hopeful this will work for a large portion of the two-thirds that the other one does not work in. But we already have gotten a signal and know that it's not going to work for everyone. So, so our research is really focused on the thousands of patients that have my disease that do not respond to the only drugs that are available. Mm-hmm. And so continuing to push that forward, particularly some of the sickest patients with Castleman disease are the ones who are not responding to therapy. And so wanted to find drugs for those really sick patients. Patient just down the street in L.A. County Hospital that, that nearly died a couple months ago was ama- amazingly able to survive. But but these are the, the patients that we're, we're, we're working for. Um, so focusing on people where, where these drugs don't work to get new drugs for them and potentially not new, brand new drugs, but maybe old drugs that are approved for something else and use them in a new way. Um, next is, is trying to expand a little but beyond Castleman disease. The immune system, as you mentioned, is complicated, but it's, there's these diseases that are interconnected, type 1 diabetes, Castleman's, MS, the, these diseases that all suffer from dysfunction of the immune system. So what can we learn about one of these diseases that can apply to another? I mentioned earlier that collaboration's a bit of a problem within the medical space, and it's not because people don't want to collaborate, and it's not because we don't all have good intentions, but sometimes there just isn't the systems in place or the time to put into collaboration. And so we are very focused in, in my lab and my program on looking at these related diseases and seeing what we can learn and teach one another and, and help to move things forward. And then, and then the third area, which is a bit more macro, is trying to take the approach that we've taken for Castleman disease and to share it with other rare diseases. This this approach of going from hoping the right person applies at the right time to actually creating systems so that you do figure out what is the right work and let's do it right now. And, and so we've been um, partnering with a number of umbrella organizations that are in the rare disease space to, to share our model and hopefully many other diseases can take it on as well. It seems to me that, that anyone who has a disease that isn't quote unquote quote, cured, Mm -hmm. and is hearing about all of the work that's being done and the research, they're always wishing that the clock would speed up on on the research, and at the same time that the clock would slow down on their lives. And for you, it's both. Um, It seems like such a unique position to be in. Do do you look at the clock differently than I do? I think I, I think you're exactly right. It's it's complicated, and I think I do look at look at my clock. I, I really I can hear the clock. You know, I, I know that I have in essence a ticking time bomb inside of me. I have a disease that could come back at any moment, and um, so just as you said, there's this urgency to develop drugs more quickly to help patients like me. But there's also this wanting to make every second slow down. You know, the time when I'm with Amelia, the time when I'm with Caitlin, the time when I'm with my family, um, trying to make every second, you know, take a little bit slower. Um, and so it's, uh, 
it's a challenge that I think many of us face. My, my case is maybe a little bit um, more extreme, but but all of us that are you know working hard and have have loved ones in our lives that we care about, these are challenges that we all face. And and I also think think my book, though it's literally about you know a doctor chasing my cure and our cure. It's also, I think, a universal story about you know getting up and fighting back after life knocks us down. And I think that these are these are lessons, as I said early, as I shared earlier, that I hope can help others. That they yeah. don't have to go through all the things I went through yeah. um, to be able to, to maybe to hear the clock and to realize we're all in overtime. And that doesn't mean we need to be frantic and we need to you know live kind of out of our means. But it, it means that we should really recognize that every second counts make the most of every second. There's a, a motto that I use, think it, do it. And that's to basically say that when I nearly died for the first time, I regretted the things that I didn't do. Um, so, and, and that I thought of doing. So if I think of doing something and it's the right thing to do, then we need to get going doing mm. it. Mm. You have an amazing story, David, but I'm interested in Caitlin's story. And why did she stick around? <laughs> I've asked her that a few times, yeah. and um, and even when we were first getting back together, I I I remember it was after my third time I almost died. I was um, completely bald from chemotherapy. I was so weak from what I'd gone through, and I remember her saying to me, "I, I want us to get back together," and um, I remember feeling my bald head and and looking at her and saying, "You know, are you sure?" And um, you know, I, I have this terminal illness. I've gone through all this. I. I I pushed you away all these times. Um, and I remember her looking back at me with this look like, of course I'm sure, like, are you crazy? And I kind of looked at her like, are you crazy? And, right. and we're both uh, you know, thinking the other person's crazy. Um, but I think that what's sustained us and gotten us through this, um, I can't think of like an objective, rational way to describe it other than just say the power of love. And that um, it seems like how could she possibly go through and want to go through all that she's gone through with me um, to be by my side through all these highs and lows and the uncertainty of the future? You know, I can hear the clock. She most certainly can hear the clock. When we spend time with our sweet Amelia, I, I think that she's very aware of of the clock and of, of what I have. Um, and so, you know, why would someone go through this and why would someone put themselves through this? And, and I think that like I said, the only way to, to make sense of it is to, to say the power of love, and that's the only thing that I can think of. Mm. Finally, if at the end of all this, at some point it comes back and you lose mm-hmm. and the clock runs out, yeah. um, will you have felt like you had done enough? What will the final thoughts be? I think because... I have spent so much time trying to turn my hopes and my prayers into action and because I really have spent the time since 2012 doing those two things, driving after my disease and spending time with the people that I love, I won't have any regrets. Mm -hmm. I will have known that I fought with everything that I had. And I think that that helps me to, to live every day and to, and to, you know, to go to sleep at night and know that I did everything today that I can for myself, but also for all the other patients that are counting on me. Of, of course, um, I will be devastated or would be devastated um, that I couldn't have done more. Um, but that's also why I've written this book and why I'm trying to raise awareness about Castleman disease to get other people to be a part of this army to raise money and raise awareness for Castleman disease because that could actually help to make it so that I could be here longer with Amelia and with Caitlin. Yeah. Well, Dr. Fagenbaum, we wish you all the best. Thank you so and, much for uh, having me. We, we expect you to succeed. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. If you'd like to see my conversation with Dr. Fagenbaum, tune in to KTLA this weekend. We're on at 8.30 p.m. on Saturday and at midnight on Sunday. And we'll post the show to YouTube after it's aired on TV. If you enjoyed today's audio podcast, I hope you'll subscribe. We have more than 160 episodes with fascinating guests who you can listen to on demand. And of course, it's always free to listen. If you have some feedback on today's show, tag me on social media. I'm Frank Buckley TV on Twitter and on Instagram. And there's a Frank Buckley Facebook page as well. Thanks for listening today. And until next time, I'll see you on TV.